Um, I don't know about you, but I am absolutely passionate about the vision of this church, the mission we talked about before, but our preferred future to be a family of 6,000 disciples by 2030 with 3,000 in life groups and 3,000 in serve teams. That's not about, all about the numbers. What it is is that I want for more people to experience Jesus in their life. I want more people to experience the freedom that Jesus offers. I want more people to experience God's unconditional love. I want more people to be invited into this community of faith, to find a place where they belong, where they haven't found belonging before. I want our church to grow so that more and more people can experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. And so when I was reading an article last night by a guy named Kerry Newhoff, who's a pastor and a blogger up in Barrie, I've never met Kerry or heard him preach, but he seems like a great guy from the stuff I've read. I was reading this article and thinking, man, this just hits me right where I live because, see, the article was this, five stupid things that Christians should stop doing if they want to reach more unchurched people. Number one, stop being so weird online. I'll just be honest with you, right? We're weird online. We're really weird. I don't know why every female between the ages of about 16 and 28 has to Instagram their Bible study time. I don't know what they, if you follow Instagram, there's always that one Instagram picture with like the Bible, the journal, and the cappuccino, right? And like the caption is like, getting up with God, you know, getting my day started, hashtag blessed, hashtag love the word, hashtag man does not live by bread alone, hashtag whoa man does not live by bread alone. Like whatever it is, I don't know what it is, it's like that's weird. Well, tell me it's not weird. It's weird. Number two, commenting on politics. You might think you need to. You probably don't. It, it divides us and it, it, it distances us from the world. Number three, handling conflict so poorly. We're just bad at this. Number four is ranking sin selectively. When we rank sin selectively, that sin's worse than this sin. Oh, that's real bad. That's awfully bad. But this one, gossip, it's so bad. Number five is judging outsiders. It's fascinating to me because two of the five things that Carrie Newhoff calls out as things that Christians should stop doing in order to reach people around us have to do with the way we treat one another. Isn't that fascinating? One, we handle conflict poorly. Two, we judge outsiders. That's the way we treat one another and the world outside. It's the way we interact with one another. It puts people off. It alienates them. It keeps them at arm's length when we do this kind of stuff. This makes sense to me because Jesus himself said that they will know that you're my disciples because of your next slide, love for one another. And the contrast is also true that they'll be pretty sure you're not my disciples if you're treating one another like garbage. Right? A 16th century philosopher even said this, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian faith, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men should quarrel with such rancorous animosity. It's like a sport in church. And display daily towards one another bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. You see, division, factions, quarrels, strife within the body of Christ is not a new thing. It's been going on since at least the 16th century and even 2,000 years ago because this is what James is going to address today and write directly to the church and say, let's stop this fighting stuff because it doesn't help us accomplish the mission of God. It actually sets us back. So James begins, James chapter 4, this way. He says, what causes 
quarrels and what causes fights among you. He's saying, okay, there are quarrels and there are fights among you, but what's the root of those things? Where do they start? What's the cause? And if you were to ask me this question, almost every single time, I am going to blame somebody else. What causes fights in your marriage? Well, we fight mostly, I think, because Amy's often wrong. That's, what I, that's why we fight. And then when I correct her, she gets angry, and then she's double wrong. You know what I mean? Like, like that's why we fight. And if you, you can giggle at that a little bit, but if you think about your own marriage, if you think about your work, if you think about the way that you interact with others, when there is tension, strife, and contention within those relationships, and somebody asks you, what happened? How'd that start? Well, they're just a little bit selfish. Well, they're just a little bit immature. They just, they just need to grow right? Uh, you know, they, they say the right thing, but they don't always know how to say it. And it's always about somebody else. It's always about blaming that other person for strife and quarrels and contention. Friends, this is not a new excuse. Because when God said to original man, what happened? I told you not to eat from that tree. What'd you do? Original man responds to God and he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. See, that blame thing starts right away, doesn't it? Not only does he blame the woman, but indirectly, who is he blaming? You gave her to me. I didn't create her. You did, right? She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. James is saying, look, you're going to have to take a good hard look at yourself and stop this blame game. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Watch. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James says, you want to stop fighting in your marriage? You want to stop fighting in the body of Christ? You want to to stop fighting with your kids? You want to solve that? First, look internally. And be ruthless with the internal reflective look at how I might be contributing, not what someone else did. Man, she gave me the fruit. Uh, he, he, he's just kind of a jerk sometimes. Yeah, he's a little bit greedy. He, yeah, yeah, it's probably them. It's probably my kid. My kid's not, yeah, they're just not quite that mature yet. No, no, no. First look internally. And then there's a second step. Okay, first look internally. Then, then keep looking. Don't ever start looking externally, James says. These are fights that are caused by conflict that's going on within you. It's warring passions within you. And he starts to name them. He says, you desire, but you do not, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Some of those in James's congregation that he's writing directly to may have actually been doing this. It might have been, commentators, Bible scholars say this might have been a group of Jewish zealots that wanted a particular thing and they would actually kill people for it. But Jesus says, if you hate your brother, that's equivalent to murder, right? So so he's saying, you desire and do not have, and so you then get hateful towards somebody else because they have what you want. In other words, if you don't get grateful, you're going to get hateful quick, is what James is saying to us. And he says, you covet and cannot obtain. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This word covet is very, very interesting. We're just going to put it in the back of our mind, put it in the back of our mind, save it for later. We're not going to talk about it now. Save it for later, okay? In the original language, this word is zelo. Can everybody say that with me? Zelo. With a little more enthusiasm. It's like jello, okay? Zello. 
okay, good. Just remember that. We'll save it for later. And cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, what's going on is that there's something inside of you that's happening that causes fighting and quarreling, things like competition. I mean, essentially, that's what social media is. It's just an online outlet to compete with people. So it's like, who has the nicer car and who has the better vacation and who, who looks better without a filter on? That's just a very confusing thing to me. Like, you have filters, use them. Makes you look younger, it's great. Don't hashtag no filter. Like, and it's just a big competition. It's a big competition all the time. And, and, and we do it with everything. I do it, I do it. I'm telling you, I do it because I watch other preachers and I watch other pastors. I'm like, I'm not that funny. I want to be funnier. I'm not, I don't tell good stories like that. I can't, I can't deliver like that and we begin to compete. And then I begin to dislike that person because they're better than me. And then I want to be better than them. And see, it causes quarrels and strife within us. Greed causes that kind of thing. That's the desire for more all the time. I got to have more. I got to have more. I got to have more. Or envy causes that kind of thing. Envy is different than greed. Greed is the desire for more. Envy is just the desire for what somebody else has. So greed is just, is just driven by, I just got to have more. I just got to amass more. I just got to hoard more. Envy is just like, you got a new car, I need that car. You got a new, it, I watch it among my kids. Do you watch it among your kids? It's like when, when, when Kanan, who's one, gets a toy, and it's not even a toy Kaya wants. She takes it immediately. Like, I don't know why Amy teaches them this stuff, you know? I told a very flattering story about my wife last week, so I'm going to tell a bunch of unflattering stories about her. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. It's funny because you see this sin nature already. We, Amy and I don't teach them this stuff. Kai, why don't you go grab that toy? Just take it from Canaan. She knows she wants that toy. Why? Because he has it. She doesn't even know what it is. I want it because he has it. And we don't grow out of that. And those things cause quarrel and envy inside of us. And then James says this, it's caused quarrels and conflict among us. Watch this. James says this radical thing. Watch this. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Isn't that fascinating? When you talk about your heavenly father and you look at your life and you go, there are these things that I want and these things I desire. It may be one of two reasons. James is going to give us two, but the very first one is, did you ask God for it yet? You look around your life like, I want a spouse. Did you ask God? I, I, want a, I want a job where I'm like, you know, making money and able to contribute and able to be generous to people around me and, you know, give to kingdom purposes and take care of my family. And you whine and cry and complain about not having that thing. And my question to you would be, did you ask God yet? How many times you ask God for it? And we're going to rail against the prosperity gospel here in a minute. But James just straight up says to us, sometimes you don't have stuff because you just don't ask. Then he says, sometimes you have asked, but you, you don't receive because you ask wrongly, right? You ask with wrong motives. You want to spend it on your passions. This is not about kingdom stuff. This is about you. This is why I would rail against the prosperity gospel. Because you see people on TV all the time, and they tell you all the things that they have because they have such an amazing amount of faith, and they got a $30 million jet and a $50 million jet, however many cars they've got or whatever. So apparently, Kylie Jenner has a ton of faith, right? Because she has a ton 
ton of money. That's not how God works. God is not your cosmic genie. He's not like some divine slot machine. You pump in a bunch of nickels, and by the time you get to that 20th nickel, he's going to spit out 8,000 nickels towards you. That's not how God works. But he is a good heavenly father who knows how to give good gifts. And if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. If you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. And so when we come to him, we ask, he said, God, I want to covet. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to be jealous. I don't want to want what somebody else has. God, I just want what you would give to me so I could spend it on my own passions. No, 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 no. That's not right. God, I want what you would give to me. Would you bless me with ever, whatever you would desire for me to have so that I could bless somebody else? God, work that out in me. And all of a sudden, when you're content with what God's up to in your life and blessing others, it takes that strife and contention out of play real, real quickly. Let's keep going. Uh, James says, you adulterous people. That's a really nice thing to say, isn't it? Okay. He's drawing on an Old Testament motif here, just so everybody knows. James himself was a Jew. Many of those who are reading this letter were also Jews, and they would have been familiar with this kind of relationship that God has with his people in the Old Testament before Jesus. So God helps them understand it this way. He's like, I'm like the husband. You're like the wife. And we have this covenant relationship with one another. We promise one another some stuff. And you're like that unfaithful spouse. Just keeps running away to other gods. You're like that unfaithful spouse. You say you're going to stay, but then you find somebody else. You say you're going to stay, but then you find somebody else. And James is saying, you want to understand what that's like to God? It's like that. It's like you're, you're, you're an adulterer. It's like you've gone to some other person or thing. It's like you've gone to some other non-God when I am the God who has been faithful to you. And then he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world may makes himself an enemy of God. James puts a pretty fine point on it, doesn't he? He says, look, there, you, you can't have both of these. You can't ride two horses with one butt. You're just going to have to decide one or the other. One of my favorite artists of all time has this line, and I love it. It's like, There's a thin line between Saturday night and Sunday morning. At what point? At what point does Saturday night become Sunday morning? And he's not talking about people that are far from God. He's not talking about the when he says the world. He's not talking about people that don't yet know Jesus. What he's talking about is the values of the world. Power, greed, the first shall be first, the last shall be last. Those are the values of the world. He's saying don't adopt those. Adopt the values of the kingdom. Generosity, humility, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You can't have both of those. They are polar opposites. They are diametrically opposed to one another you have to choose James goes on to say or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he speaking of God yearns jealously have you ever heard of that word God is jealous have you ever heard that before oh, well that's an interesting thing to say don't you think I thought jealousy was a sin didn't you but jealousy was a sin. I'm not supposed to be jealous of somebody else. So how is it that God yearns jealously? So I was trying to figure that out this week. Help us understand it together, right? So the first thing I did was I looked up the word jealous or jealousy. The very first definition in the dictionary of jealous is this. The state or feeling of being jealous. <laughs> and what do we have in dictionaries for if this is what they're going to give us? It doesn't help me at all. Does that help you? No, this is stupid. Second definition, got helpful quick, ready? Zealous vigilance. Ooh, now that's a little different. Zealous fervor, passion, 
dedication, unrelenting. And vigilance is just watchful, dedicated care and attention. Ah. Now that's a little different, isn't it? See, covetousness, watch, covetousness is wanting what someone else has. God does not covet. Nor is he jealous or envious in kind of the sinful way. But God is zealously vigilant. Okay, so passionately committed. Fervently and unrelentingly watchful over what, James says? He's jealous of the spirit. He's, next one, the spirit he's made to dwell in us. So listen, watch this. God is not jealous of you, but he's jealous for you. Oh, man, I hope that sets you free today. I hope that you get a sense of how God feels about you in that. That, that, that no matter who you are, where you come from, what your spiritual background is, what you think of your life, that God is passionately and fervently watchful over you and vigilant. Why? Because he created you in his image. So you are his. You are his treasure. You are his design. So he is passionately committed, jealous for you. Now, that's pretty cool. James is going to make one transition comment here that we're going to actually come back to and conclude with. And then he's going to give us some practical ways that we can eliminate quarrels and strife and conflict from our life. Here's the transitional statement. We'll come back and close with this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, that's the Bible. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, three practical ways that James says, here's the way that you can root out quarrels and contentions and factions in your life wherever they show up. Number one, draw near to God and, next slide, or submit yourself, sorry, therefore to God, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I love this. I love what's happening here because this word resist, interestingly enough, in the original language, when I think of the word resist, I think of something that's coming at me and I'm trying to defend myself, don't you? I'm trying to resist the oncoming whatever, the oncoming onslaught. I'm trying to resist getting fatter. You know, I'm trying to resist those things. I'm trying to resist. I'm trying to push back. Something's attacking me, and I'm pushing back. That's not the original language there. That's a word of attack. It's a word of aggression. He says, take up your sword, not your shield, against the devil. You go after the forces of darkness. You go after the forces of the world that are at play here and, and push back against them, not defend yourself, but get aggressive. And so the two things that James is saying to us is submit yourself to God and resist the devil. Humbly say, okay, God, I will do what you say. I will live how you want me to live. You watch conflict and, and, and dissension just get rooted out of your life like that when you submit to God. The second thing is, Begin to actively resist what's happening in the world that's not bringing the kingdom. And you know what's funny is I find that those who are fighting or people who are fighting uh, darkness have no time to fight one another. 
In my six years at Bayview Glen, I've been here six years come this, this September, we've had our fair share of troubles and factions. And by and large, the people who have been engaged in those contentious conversations, even if it wasn't me and I had to show up as like the referee, by and large, those people weren't actually doing anything for the kingdom. I mean, they showed up here and they attended and stuff, but they weren't like actively serving or actively bringing good things in the world. They weren't on a serve team. They weren't in the life group. They're just there and here. So the people that, that you know, I had a friend that's like, she serves in ESL on a very regular basis. She's in her 80s. I'm like, you just seem to avoid conflict in the body of Christ. She's like, yeah, I'm too busy at ESL to have conflict. I'm like, of course you are. You're busy fighting the darkness so you don't have time to fight other people. See, that's what James is saying when he says, submit to God and resist the devil. Second thing he says is draw near to God. And I love this promise, he will draw near to you. Don't you love that? Some of you just need to take that today and know that, that when you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. He's not trying to escape you. He's not, a, he's not an apparition or a ghost. He's not a vapor. He wants to know you and be known. And he says, draw near to me. I will draw near to you. Second thing he says is this, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched, mourn, and weep, let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy turn to gloom. It's like, oh man, well that's really encouraging, James, right? Like that's a little, like gloom, mourning, wretched, purify your hearts, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Like that's pretty negative stuff. Here's what he's saying. is he says, call a spade a spade, really. He says, that conflict that I've engaged in, that's sin. Those contentious uh, situations, those, those times where I've let my greed, my, my, my competitive spirit, my envy, whatever it is, take hold of me and it causes a, a fracture in a relationship between me and another person. I'm just going to step back over here and call that what it is. That's sin. And when I call it what it is, I'm going to weep over it. I, I, I'm not going to take joy in it. I'm going to say those things are not good things. I'm just going to name them. And as I draw near to God and he draws near to me, what this is saying is that you repent. Is that you repent. You turn from that and go another direction. A friend of mine has said oftentimes that people oftentimes remain in a codependent relationship with their dysfunctional self. I think it's a very funny way to put it. What he's saying is a lot of times we thrive on chaos, right? There's people in your life, you may know these type of people, you may be one of these type of people and you don't even know it yet, that thrives on chaos. And so you create tension and fracture and, and, and contentious stuff in your life and you're always in arguments with people and like, you, you know, you never stayed at a church for very long. You know, I was there for a little while and then that didn't go well and I was there for a little while and that didn't go well and there for a little while and that didn't go well and now I'm at Bayview Glen and in six months you're going to be somewhere else. You know why? Because the common denominator is you. It's not the church. There ain't no problem with the church. It's you. You like chaos. You thrive in that. And God is saying, repent of that. Turn from that. Call it sin. And learn to be peaceable by drawing near to God. Third kind of one-two punch James gives us is this. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I love the way that James says this because what he's saying is that this is a choice. You make the choice to be humble. 
humble yourself. This is a choice. Humility is a choice. It's either a choice you make or a choice that God makes for you. <laughs> but I'd rather make it first before God makes it for me, don't you think? It was humble ourselves before God and say, I am not smarter than you. You are smarter than me. I don't have better plans. You have plans. I don't know how to run the world. You know how to run the world. I don't know what's going on in that other person's life. I'm not going to be their judge. You can be their judge. That's above my pay grade. I'm going to humble myself before God. So as Kendrick Lamar once said, he said, be humble. Sit down. Be humble. And the second thing is wait. Is wait. Humble yourselves under the Lord's mighty hand, and he will exalt you in his due time, is what Peter says. James is saying the same thing. And just wait on God. God, I don't need to elevate myself. I don't need to compete. I don't need to have more. I don't need to be envious. I'm just going to wait on you. You want to bless me? Great. If not, I'm just waiting on you and being humble. And it begins to remove that tension, fracture, quarrels, and strife in your personal life, and within the body of Christ. Let's let James conclude the passage, and we're going to come back to verse 7. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. A lot of you read that and went, What the heck? Like, what in the world is that? James is going to sum it up. You ready? Here you go. There is only one lawgiver and judge. That's God. With me? But he who is able to save and destroy, that's God. So who are you to judge your neighbor? God is the legislative and executive branch. He made the law. He kept all the law through his son Jesus. He's the one that's the judge. That is above your pay grade. You do not want that job. And so when we come along and begin to judge our neighbor because they said this or did that, or they live this way or not that way, they have this, they don't have that, they come to church, they don't come to church, you know, whatever it is, whatever, it is, I don't know what it is, why you judge your neighbor. God says, that is not your job. It never has been your job. You are not qualified for that job. You stay in your job. You stay in your lane, which would be a gracious neighbor that speaks well of others around you and avoids quarrels and strife. Now, here, and this is the conclusion, and this is so beautiful if you see it. He makes this transitional statement in verse 7, and I was listening to a sermon this week where the pastor said this might be his favorite verse in the Bible. It really is one of the most beautiful in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of the decay and decrepitness that is your heart, in the midst of broken relationships, in the midst of divorce, in the midst of, of, of distant kiddos that have gone off the rails, in the midst of all of that stuff, in the midst of really fouled up, messed up motives that we all have. And like I start talking about this, and I've used this illustration many times, and, and I forgive me because you maybe have heard it before. I think it's worth saying again. I start talking about sin and the stuff that's going on in our heart. People are like, oh, I'm not that bad. Like, really, can we hook up a machine to your head and heart this week, and then next Sunday we'll watch a highlight reel of all the bad things you thought on the screens behind me? Like, what if we could hook that up? You, we could hook you up, all your motives, all your thoughts. We could hook all that up to the technology in here. How would that feel? Pretty good, right? No, 
Nobody wants that. You see, there is some stuff lurking in there. So in the midst of all of that stuff, in the midst of the trail of broken relationships that you've left behind, what does God do? He gives more grace. When God had every right to just drop kick you out the door. When God had every right to just go, I'm done. I'm done. Too many, too many promises made and promises broken. Too many. Too many times I will never do that again. Too many times. Too many times. And I love you, but you know what? We're done. No, 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 that's not God. He just gives more grace and pours out more favor and pours out more blessing, especially when we don't deserve it. There's not any sin in your life, any broken relationship, any fracture, any one of those motives or things you don't want on the screen for everybody to see. None of that, none of that will ever outpace grace. Grace always wins. Because God gives more grace. He opposes the proud. But those who have humbled themselves, he just pours out more and more and more grace. My prayer is that we would be a community of people that are always experiencing that grace and then extending it to others so that God begins to eliminate the quarrels and fractures and factions that are among us. Let's pray. God, a lot has been said this morning just about your word and about um, the ways in which we treat one another and the, the consequences of that treatment. So God, I, um, I pray that there would maybe just be one thing for each of us today, just one thing that we'll take out of this place and apply, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, that we would be doers also that you would encourage us and mold us and motivate us to put these principles into action and watch you um, heal those broken places in our hearts and heal especially broken places in relationships even within the body. May we be a people who demonstrate the fact that we belong to you because we love one another well. Christ's name, God's people together said, Amen.